Conservation Queens podcast. We are five girls who love the earth and have a passion for living a more eco-friendly life. We are real-life zoo employees, and as always, nothing that we say reflects our organizations, and all thoughts and opinions are our own. Please keep in mind that we do try to keep the podcast about PG-13, so if you have some younger listeners, you may want to review the content beforehand. With that, I'm Abby. I'm Katie. Oh, I'm Emily. <laughs> I'm Kinsey. And I'm Emily. And with that, let's talk about stuff. We Did broke you? our streak. That is, like, that is the easiest uh, part of our podcast. It sure is. Wrong it sure is. Time. <laughs> well, there's five. You're trying to get like herding cats, you know, trying to get the attention of all 10 kindergartners in a room. It's very difficult. Um, <laughs> all right. So for our fan shout out this week, um, shout out to all our patrons. Once again, we love you. Uh, we've ordered the stickers, so if you would like a sticker, become a patron. Become a yeah. Veruca Babe, and you too could have a sticker. Um, sticker. They'll be on their way soon, so look out for those. Um, they should be to us within the next week or so, and then we will be sending them out. So Go get, get a excited. new water bottle. Let's Ooh, just put your stickers on. A new reusable water bottle. Well, yeah, reusable. Save Don't the put planet it on a plastic one. and save our podcast at the same time. Hydrate or dehydrate. <laughs> Our podcast is not dying, but you know, you could uh, just rip it. Yeah. yeah, don't worry. We're still we're still kicking. We're yeah. here. <laughs> All right. Conservation. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been uh, I've seen this on news outlets a lot recently, even though it happened in July, at the end of July, um, is Earth Overshoot Day. Have you guys ever heard of this before? No. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I have only heard about it for the first time this year and feel like this is a thing more people need to know about um but basically it earth overshoot day marks the day every year when humanity's demand for resources and services in a given year exceeds what the earth can regenerate in that same year oh so basically it's like the point of the year where we've just run out of everything the earth cannot regenerate it uh so rough but borrowing from the future Exactly. So this year, that date fell on July 29th. <laughs> it's a little early. A little early. So um, there, yeah, it's been progressively getting earlier and earlier every year. Um, so they've documented this since 1970, the organization. it's You can look it up. It's just Earth Overshoot Day, and you can find their website. Um, super cool. I must have spent, like, actually an hour on this website today. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1970, um, Earth Overshoot Day happened on December 30th. So literally right wow. before the new year, which, like, you know what? <laughs> Great. And then we ruined everything since then, and it has been getting earlier and earlier each year since. Um, the only year it actually dropped to a later date than the year previous was in 2020 Okay, um, wow. because of the pandemic and lockdowns. It was actually, uh, we didn't hit the day until August 22nd, <laughs> which still, yeah, isn't great. But like compared to the years before, um, it actually was <laughs> a big drop back. Um, but I guess you know we needed a global pandemic to do that, so it's fine. Awesome. Uh, but so the whole website or the whole initiative of this organization focuses on um right now they have a hashtag going it's hashtag move the date um so instead of having it fall closer and closer to the beginning of the year um each year they want it to start pushing back again to the end of the year um so every day on their website they have a solution of the day which i actually think is super cool like so if you go on it today um, you can go and see what the solution of the day is. So it'll basically just um, a suggestion for a more sustainable method of um, energy or agriculture or what have you, but really cool stuff. Um, they also have a tab with resources for kids and teachers to start learning about solutions to help create a more sustainable world as well. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're not doing hot. We're not doing great. Um, <laughs> we, we knew this. We've been, we've known this, but. Uh, the reason we have the podcast this i i just didn't know there was a literal day every year where like they are able to calculate oh 
we done it guys that's it um but the obviously the fact that it's getting earlier and earlier every year is a big alarming. problem mm-hmm. yeah yeah alarming that's a good word for it so definitely check it out earth overshoot day um go check out their website they also had this thing previously that was like uh i forget exactly what it was called it was like 100 days of sustainability but basically just like things communities can start doing um to basically help combat this which i thought was really neat too that is well i have some local news which is not something that we normally do um but we have to talk about it um unfortunately it's not great news there's a rescue local to central florida which is the area we're in um called pet alliance uh, recently, they had a devastating fire that caused an estimation of 20 to 30 lives to be lost and the shelter to need extensive reconstruction. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, um, they have kind of been the equivalent to ASPCA. They actually used to be ASPCA and then they separated off to Pet Alliance. Um, but they have been that for several years and have been pillars of the community helping to save animal lives. And I know we don't normally talk about uh, domestic animals uh, other than, you know, cats during (laughs) the environment. (laughs) Um, But um, saving domestic lives from poor living conditions and taking them in from abandonment is something we all still support. So if you would like to go support them and help them in their efforts to continue saving animal lives and rebuilding that shelter space, please go to their website. It's petallianceorlando.org and go to ways to give so you can find some ways that you can help. So always support your local zoos, conservation, and the rescues too. Yeah, I got my cat from there. So I was really heartbroken to hear about the fire. Um, yeah. yeah and I might have to go get more cats now. So it's oh, no. fine. <laughs> oh no, like to rescue from the- yeah, there, Magnolia's foster mom uh, works with Pet Alliance. But some good news um, to kind of help cheer that mm. up. Two of the firefighters adopted some of the animals that they rescued. <laughs> it oh. was very cute. It was. Yeah, one of them rescued a cat, and then the other one adopted a dog named Lavender. So wow, cry a little, a little light for for everyone. Also, they asked like initially the donations. They like their goal was a thousand dollars. They currently have forty three thousand dollars. Oh my donations. gosh! So yeah, it checked. They posted it was only eighteen. Wow. Um, they posted uh, on Instagram earlier and said like you know they're having an adoption event tomorrow at their Sanford location, and that like we're blown away by all the donations and it was just very you know sweet That's to see amazing. so absolutely yeah. and wow. i guess we're doing one to, thing right in florida yes <laughs> <laughs> to add on i guess to a little bit of positivity i know i said there were estimated to be 20 to 30 lives lost but they did actually save a total of 45 cats and 26 dogs um and no dogs were lost um they think it was just the cats no. so um on the lighter side, they did save more than what were lost. Uh, I have happier news. Yay! What is it, Abby? There's a lot of zoos that are starting to vaccinate their animals against COVID-19. They've kind of, a lot of them have like already done primates, and now they're starting to go on to things like marine mammals and otters and uh, tigers and stuff. So it's kind of cool. Love that. Also, this is kind of conservation slash zoo news because we know they go hand in hand. Uh, the Fort Worth Zoo this week released their 1,000th horned lizard baby into the wild. I saw that. That's, That's amazing. So awesome. So, so that was uh, kind of what happened. Lizards, live your life. Good lizards. We need them. We like them. <laughs> uh, what about Beluga News? Because there's apparently some crossover here, too. Yes. Uh, Beluga News. News. Um, this story is actually mostly about bottlenose dolphins. I know we hate them, alas. Whoa. Uh, whoa. <laughs> but and by we, I mean You've me. painted beluga uh, news. A big study um, done in, I think it was like 43 accredited marine animal facilities in the United States, but across um, the globe, actually. I think they said nine countries um, that participated in this study looking at wellness of their cetaceans. So this included um, information from animals like bottlenose dolphins, Pacific white-sided dolphins, and beluga whales. 
So what this study did is between, I think it was 2017, 2018, and maybe even 2019, uh, they sent out these packs, um, kind of imagine like a Fitbit for a dolphin or a whale. Uh, they put these and it's kind of like a little suction cup, doesn't hurt them, just sits on their back. And they wear them for a couple hours a day and it just records a whole bunch of healthcare data for these animals. So it includes things like how much they're swimming, how far they're swimming, how much they're coming up to take a breath, how much time they're spending at the surface. Great. Um, what are they playing with? Are they playing? Are they resting? All of these different health metrics. Um, and then that analyzed and the results were actually released this week. And the most important finding of the study uh, was that the enrichment, so the toys, the sessions, all of that, the enrichment that the animals received was more important to them than positive animal welfare, i.e. the animals are, and I use quotes heavily here, happier. Uh, heavily. <laughs> yes. Um, that was more important to the animals and to their welfare than the size of their environment. So what that's basically saying is, you know, the environment is important to a degree, but it's what you do with that, right? So it's, you know, the training sessions that these animals partake in, these exercise sessions, all of the toys, all the enrichment that they're given, it's more likely to lead to positive animal welfare than just having a bigger environment. So um, we love that. So I just have to mention, um, because this beluga news and talking about dolphins made me think about it, I went to Georgia Aquarium this past weekend and oh. New Atlanta, but it was incredible. But I mean, they had a dolphin show where the entire show was based off of how they train the dolphins um, and why they use enrichment and how it can benefit them. Um, and it was like incredible. I've never seen an entire show dedicated to enrichment and training so Amazing. Um, loved that highly recommend it uh if you ever go go see the dolphin show <laughs> and the no other zoos that's smart yeah katie what are islands oh yeah that is that is my i forgot i was doing that part so that's the uh, theme for today um cue the castaways music um castaways <laughs> we are castaways <laughs> Yep. <laughs> We're going to be talking about islands. Whoop. Because islands, while they're not technically a biome, this is not part of our biome series. They, we realized, we were like, why haven't we done an islands episode? That's, those are some, because they're weird, incredible ecosystems to talk about. And we all have sort of different experience with islands. So fun stuff ahead. But yes, beginning with what are islands? Why do they get their own episode? I'm so glad you asked. Why um, do they get their own episode? <laughs> there's actually a branch of ecology called island ecology um, because islands are just so crazy to study. Um, the organisms on these islands and their interactions with each other and the environment um, is what is studied in this branch. But basically, islands account for nearly one-sixth of Earth's total land area, um, yet the ecology of these island ecosystems is super different from that of the mainland. Um, the isolation of the islands and the high availability of empty niches um, leads to a lot of speciation, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, how that works. But because of the um, island ecosystems because of this, island ecosystems compromise about 30% of the world's diversity hotspots, 50% of marine tropical diversity, and some of, some of just the most unusual and rare uh, species of big, sexy megafauna you ever did see. Um, yeah. Is that so. for Australia? Well, okay. <laughs> so technically... The definition of an island is literally just a body of land surrounded by water. However, island. however, continents, even if they are surrounded completely by water, are not considered islands because they are too big. Well, um, I'm still going to so use Australia, Australia as an example. Well, it technically is not an island, though there are a lot of islands off the coast of Australia that are um very noteworthy but yeah so i don't really get why who was like you know what just it's too big even though it literally is an island mm -mm. too big and i still have permission to use it as an example because it's very helpful in my segment i mean yeah okay just 
it's fine. <laughs> I'm not going to call the island ecology cops on you, I promise. Oh, thank God. Um, but that being said, the biggest island in the world is considered to be Greenland. Um, it's the world's largest island that is not a continent. So, yeah, there's your piece of trivia for when you're at Trivia Night and they ask you what the world's largest island is. Now you know. But uh, there are over 100,000 islands on Earth, uh, so a lot. Um, but some notable ones, uh, some notable islands and island chains uh, that you may have heard of would include um, Indonesia, which has some of the largest islands in the world, including New Guinea, Sumatra, and Borneo. Um, we've talked a lot about some of these islands um, in quite a few of our episodes, um, but mainly I remember talking a lot about it in our palm oil episode. Uh, Madagascar, uh, which is known for very unique wildlife not found anywhere else, like lemurs, baby! Lemurs, baby! Fusa and Tenrex are some of my other favorite examples. Um, I love Fusa! I know you love Fusa. I'm <laughs> in college, y'all. Yeah, she does. She did. So yeah, those are only found on the island of Madagascar. Um, Honshu, which is the largest of Japan's four primary islands, the islands of Hawaii, which um, Emily B is going to talk about in a bit, the Galapagos Islands, which uh, Abby cannot wait to talk about, Daddy so Darwin, excited. What? and in the islands of the Caribbean, uh, just to name a few. It's really impossible to name all the islands out there, and each has their own unique ecosystem, but we're going to just focus on a couple in this episode. So why don't you take us to the Galapagos, Abby? Yeah, so not only talking about Galapagos, but also just about, like, uh, apparently this is supposed to be called Daddy Darwin time. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't Wait, know who so put that in there. Here's the thing. I'm pretty sure... Okay, this was Funny, like... I would never. Yeah, it was actually <laughs> not me, surprisingly. This no, it like definitely was Emily B. Way early... <laughs> in our like maybe like second or third episode I don't even know um did someone like we were talking about Darwin and I want to say it was Kenzie was like daddy Darwin actually it was not me I was the one who got mad at daddy Darwin I think it was me guys sorry it was probably I think it was Abby but Abby said that and Kenzie was like girl what the heck (laughs) did you just I don't know I was tired Um, and now it's stuck with us. But but the thing was, we edited that out. So like, whenever we mentioned it since, I feel like we've either edited it out again because we were like, oh yeah, our listeners don't know what we're talking about, or just didn't explain it, or just the time is that. now. So there is your explanation, everyone. I'm not editing this out. <laughs> I made a bad um, joke and it came back to bite me. So yeah, <gasps> get get ready for T-shirts that say Daddy Darwin on them. And then, like, we're not big doing that. Nope. And then, like, a picture of all the finches on it. I love that. Actually. That's a well, good speaking of the finches. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, islands are kind of a hot spot for what's called fancy evolution. Um, fancy evolution? Is that actually a term? No, we're going to talk about speciation. Oh. <laughs> you said that so, like, this is an actual term. It is now. Uh, so, the reason. Um, we're just talking about evolution for a minute here. The reason that Darwin developed the theory of evolution is because of his studies in the Galapagos Islands. So the Galapagos Islands are home to the finches that Darwin was studying. Um, so he actually wasn't studying the finches exactly. He was studying other things on his uh, big old voyage, but he had learned how to prepare bird samples, um, which fun fact, I used to do in college too. Um, and when I went to London, I got to see some of Darwin's original birds from the Galapagos Islands, you guys. Wow. I nerded out so hard. It was insane. Um, but basically, when Darwin got back to London after his voyage, he was looking at all these birds he had, and he realized that the finches were all, like, really, really similar, except for their beaks. Except not. <laughs> except they weren't. So... He um, compared them to other finches that the world had, like other samples they had, and they didn't really match. He kind of concluded they were their own category. But then he also noticed that each island's finch had a different beak shape, and the beaks corresponded to the specialized 
food they had on the island. And so the finches and then other discoveries that Darwin um, made or and other people that also helped contributed um, to these findings led Darwin to writing The Origin of Species, which is what presented the theory of evolution on the greatest scale and caused all the controversy, which for some reason is still not over. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, so this is a big deal. Islands are a big deal. Um, but the question is, why are islands hot spots for speciation, which is basically evolution, right? So islands, whether they're volcanic or continental, so I'm going to include Australia in this, are the Fair. perfect place for evolution to happen because they're surrounded by water, which is a natural geographic barrier, not to be confused with a national geographic. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Uh, <laughs> So there's not a whole lot of animals that can cross the entire ocean. Um, so species tend to adapt to their individual islands niches very quickly. So for those who don't know, or for those who don't remember, a niche is a specific role in an ecosystem. And so on islands, they have only a couple niches to fulfill. So species, um, if we go to survival of the fittest, they tend to fit the survival really, really quick. Um, Australia, I was going to say, is a great example because all these Aussie animals are insane, right? Everybody always comments about it, True but that. there wasn't a way for the animals to interact with other ones that were not on the island, right? So that's why yeah. Australia has so many marsupials, whereas the rest of the entire world only has one marsupial. <laughs> and we which got is, it, baby. Which is crazy, right? We got it you right think, here. You would think that they would like have some other strategies, but no, most of Australia's mammals are marsupials, but the rest of the world has one because when when the Australian continent broke away from the rest of the world, there were pretty much only marsupials, I think is kind of what the theory is. And so on one side of the earth, they're all adapting, but there's only marsupials in this island. So they persisted and that was beneficial in that ecosystem. So that's what flourished, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. So islands do tend to spark accelerated evolution because of the niches that the animals fill really quickly. But it also leads to some weird stuff happening. And we know how much I love weird <laughs> some stuff. Weird ass animals. Weird ass animals. Um, and plants, actually. So I learned this morning that woodiness, so like woody plants, are found in a lot of island plants because there aren't as many herbivores to eat the plants. So mm-hmm. they all are competing for the same resources. So being woody and hardier is actually beneficial. So some of the examples included Hawaiian silver sword plants, which are really, I think they're endangered. Yes. They are, I'm looking at it right now. They are critically endangered. Um, they only live kind of at the tops of the mountains. So they live on Mauna Kea, they live on Haleakala. Um, they also have experienced um, some of the things we're gonna be talking about, like adaptive radiation, um, like Abby's currently talking They are only found basically in very protected areas. And historically, they kind of used to be all over the place. And alas, now they are not. Um, They were down to actually 25 individuals, um, like early 1900s. um, And it was because of a bunch of like livestock animals eating. Um, Yes. We'll get more to that in a moment when I finish reading about it. Yes. (laughs) I can Um, only speak as fast as I can read. So um, on the other hand, we're talking about animals. There is this uh, phenomenon called Foster's Rule, which is also known as the island effect. So this says that members of species get really, really small or really, really big, depending on the available resources. So it's also known as insular gigantism or insular dwarfism. And this is specifically for islands. So animals that don't have any predators on islands tend to be huge. Yeah, they do. Big, sexy, megafauna. The biggest and the sexiest. (laughs) So uh, one example. I I want you to know just really quick that when I say that, I imagine like in that SpongeBob episode where they're like, it's an Alaskan bullworm. Except (laughs) with the other words that I use. I'm going to stop this real quick. Uh, so there are 
around 10,000 individuals now living both on Mauna Kea and Haleakala through reintroduction oh. programs. But they I were down to 25 to at one point. Oh, Lord. When I'm in Hawaii, I'll yep. try to find some. So I'm up in Haleakala. I've seen them before. They're pretty cool. We're going there at sun, uh, sunrise. It'll be two in the morning. It'll be fine. Uh, yeah, you'll see them. It'll be good. So anyway, back to gigantism first. <laughs> so Galapagos tortoises, great example. They can grow to be like 500, 600 pounds. Uh, there's big. also Gaiotia or Galotia giant lizards. Are on the Cana- they're on the Canary Islands. Um, I don't know how to say that. I, I wasn't sure if it was a Spanish pronunciation or a not Spanish pronunciation. Aren't Komodo dragons also? Yes, Komodo dragons. Um, Indonesian giant rats. Oh, Lord. What? Indonesian. Oh, they're freaking oh, man. This thing. Giant. I don't, I don't like them. Rat. Let's I'm go. okay with rats, but they're... Holy mother, that is a big rodent. <laughs> Ratatouille has some competition. That is Ooh. literally a cat. <laughs> it, yeah. I think they're probably bigger than my cat. So insane. Um, and then dodo birds, another good example. Dodo birds were just big, big giant pigeons. Oh, those dodo birds. Um, and nothing eats them. So they just, they get huge. Because there's, so nothing, there's no advantage to being smaller. So they're just all big. Yeah. Um, the reverse is also true. Uh, there are several uh, mostly extinct species of animals that were smaller than their counterparts in the mainland. For example... There were tiny elephants that were only one meter tall. Um, amazing. And they're not still here because. What do you think? Hunting. Uh, actually, I think I think there was a I think it was part of the mass extinction deal, so it actually oh, wasn't. A human. <laughs> um, but that's most of the problem. Otherwise, like but dodo I, birds. Oh. Um, yeah. So the theory of um, what's his name? I Darwin? just forgot. Theory of evolution? No, not evolution. Oh. Forster? Uh, for, Forster's rule. Foster. Foster's Sorry. rule. Sorry, I can't read. All right. Well, Foster's rule is actually a little controversial because there are big animals on continents like Africa. Yeah. Which is fair because they got a lot of big animals. Um, but I would argue that you can apply the same theory because the Sahara Desert is kind of making those animals into like an island type environment right they can't really cross the desert the Sahara, yeah. the Sahara desert yeah, specifically I mean, it's like any geographic barrier it's like the all those yeah that lake in africa like like they were, yes the lake victoria there you go. Right. It's the whole thing, yeah you know or wyoming very... toads having like the yeah. one little basin yeah exactly. so like i don't know if that if the rule could really apply because i don't know how fast those animals got so big and i think this is more talking about like they become big really really fast and it's kind of weird but either way there's a lot of um controversy over whether or not the rule is actually a rule or if it's just like we're picking and choosing things to look at right so now all this being said some species can go between islands um, there are marine species that can swim really, really long distances, like whale sharks. Um, there are some birds, like albatross, that can fly over long periods of time. Uh, if an island is close enough to the mainland, it might be easier to animals go between the islands. Um, or if it's islands in the Arctic or in Lake Superior, animals can cross over the ice if it gets thick enough in the winter. Mm-hmm. So that's not always um, a problem. So that's, that's why like island's kind of weird. Uh, and that's why usually tropical islands tend to be more diverse and stranger is because if you go to the Arctic islands, you're like, well, it's not an island all the time, just for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and there's also people on boats that bring invasive species all the time. Woo! So we'll get to that in a little bit. But let's talk about the Hawaiian islands, Emily. Oh, wait, really quick. Yeah. Um, can I also pop in there that islands are a really great way to study convergent evolution? Yes. Oh, yes. Do you, so, ta- do you talk about that? Yeah. I, I talk about convergent evolution a lot um, at my job um, because we have echidnas. And this is also bringing Australia into it. Even yeah, so this is your own rule that you're breaking. I know. Well, anyways, convergent evolution is when organisms that are not closely related at all um, evolve similar traits um, 
as a result of having to adapt to similar environments. So um, I talk about this example all the time. I bring out our echidna, um, lovingly named. I actually don't want to say their names um, because people (laughs) will be like, hey, I met that echidna. I know where you work. But anyways, um, they so, you know, meet our echidnas. But initially, they always think it's a porcupine. Um, because it is a spiky animal. No! Covered covered in spikes. So their initial, like, I bring them out. I'm like, anyone know what this animal is? And they're like, oh, it's um, a porcupine. It's a big hedgehog, you know? And I'm like, oh, no. That'll make um, me really angry really fast. Oh, every time they are looking at them in the windows, that's... It, one time I had a, a parent look in there. It was like, it's a porcupine. And the kid goes, no, that's an echidna. And the mom goes, no, that's a porcupine. Oh, boy. And I literally walked over and was like, excuse me, that's an echidna. <laughs> Please listen to your child and read the sign. Thank I you. But anyways, smart kids I work. also had one guy walk up and this was like an adult. Um, and they were like, oh, what is that? And then he looks up the sign. And he's like, oh, it's an echidna, like Knuckles from Sonic. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if that helps you remember it. Is, yes, that, is Knuckles an echidna? Yes, Knuckles is based off of an echidna. Oh. Fun fact for you, if you are a fan of Sonic the Hedgehog. But anyway, getting off track. Um, echidnas have spines. So do obviously a lot of other animals like Tenrex, um, hedgehogs, and porcupines. However, uh, uh, echidnas have no relation to porcupines, porcupines, hedgehogs, or Tenrex. Like, whatsoever. Um, but they've all adapted these prickly protrusions of uh, specialized skin uh, or ha- specialized hair sorry, um, which is called spines to protect them from getting eaten. So even though they are not closely related and are in completely different places around the world, they've all developed spines to ward off predators. Um, So you can see that a lot um, from island to island where obviously you have animals that have no relation to one another because they are completely isolated, but they develop really similar uh, adaptations. Uh, It's just a really cool thing you can study. Uh, So, yeah, I like bringing that up. It's a good point. It's awesome. Yeah. Here we go. Hawaii. Hawaii. All right. So let's talk about how the Hawaiian Islands formed. And if you're like me and you went to the University of Hawaii, I am so sorry that you have to sit through this for the 12th time because pretty much every single class that I took at that dear university started with how did we get the Hawaiian Islands? Not kidding you. I literally kept a list on my phone. Eight classes I took. (laughs) I learned about how the Hawaiian Islands formed. So you're all going to learn today. In case you haven't noticed, Hawaiian Islands, some of them are volcanic. Um, The only one that is currently an active volcano is the Big Island of Hawaii. And that's because it's currently over the hot spot. What is a hot spot? It's where the lava and the magma come out of the earth and they make land. Wow, magic. Um, because the Pacific plate is moving at a very, very slow, but very, very consistent rate islands over the course of time. Uh, so when you think of Hawaii, you think of the eight islands that are in the state of Hawaii, but there are many, many more islands that actually comprise the Hawaiian island chain. So if you've ever heard of the Northwestern Hawaiian islands, they are in fact, islands that are North and West of the state. Um, but they were also formed from this hotspot. So when the big island of Hawaii eventually moves off of the hotspot, there will be a new island formed. And that will happen in about 500,000 years, and it already has a name. It's called Loihi. Very funny. Oh. Um, also, they just took that away from whoever, one. like, finds it first. Oh, it's, we know it's there. We've seen it. It's growing. It's happening. Oh, okay. Um, it's over the hotspot. The hotspot is a big area. Um, but anyway, uh, when, it, when Loihi finally breaks the surface, it will from bottom to top. Incredible. Um, And Big Island is actually taller than Mount Everest if you measure it from the seafloor. Not that anybody cares, but now you I do. That's cool. (sighs) Um, Also, the Hawaiian island chain also contains Papahanaumokuakea. Ooh, I could almost say it in one fell swoop. Sometimes I can do it, but today I couldn't. That's okay. Uh, The Papahanaumokuakea National Marine Monument, the largest national marine monument in our national marine monument system, um, and was created by Obama, is out there. It contains the Hawaiian Islands and most of the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands and the water surrounding it and protects them um, from fishing and things like that. So that. 
Um, Hawaiian islands are a great example of allopatric speciation. So we've talked about some of the daddy Darwin type things. Um, but allopatric speciation um, occurs when there is a natural barrier, a la an ocean or, you know, things in the way um, that forces the same organism to experience different evolutionarily. So Sorry. you can say Papahata Moakakea, but you can't say evolutionarily. Correct. Evolutionary has a lot of letters in it, okay? Not as many as Papahana Moakakea. You're doing great, Abby. Thanks. Um, okay, so natural barrier forces the organism to experience different evolutionary pressures that then result in either two different forms of the same animal or the original animal and then a new one that has adapted to its new island. So there are lots of examples of this type of speciation in Hawaii, including uh, the most famously studied example, which is Drosophila flies. Flies, um, they're very easy to study because they have a quick generation time. Um, but How there are- of those flies that I kill in my biology labs? <laughs> yes, oh, I true. think many of us have experienced uh, Drosophila flies in genetics labs because of that quick generation I time. I had to work, I worked for the bio lab for my work study in my freshman year. Uh, and I had to clean that afterwards. Ugh, no. It was the smell. Was not great. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Not great. Uh, but they're all over the Hawaiian. A whole bunch of fun little genetic quirks um, because they've all adapted differently. So some of them have weird wings, weird eye colors, leg color, all kinds of weird stuff. Um, but again, it's because they had that evolutionary pressure from the geographic barrier. Um, now, what about adaptive radiation? So Abby already touched on this. Um, Darwin's finches are a good example of adaptive, adaptive radiation. But the Hawaiian have experienced adaptive radiation with lots of different animals. Um, the most famous example being the Hawaiian honeycreepers, which is a type of bird very similar to the finches, um, where they've experienced this type of speciation by filling all the different niches on the different islands. Um, all of the islands are kind of at different stages of life. Um, because the island moves over the hotspot, gets really big, forms mountains, yeah, and then as it moves away from the hotspot, time happens, the island gets worn down, and eventually it goes back into the ocean um, and becomes an atoll and eventually gone forever. Um, but because of this, they're all at different life stages, and they have different plants, different flowers, different animals, etc. Um, but these birds, they've all adapted to these different life stages of the islands. Some of them have very long curved beaks for sip sipping nectar. Some of them have seed crushing beaks. Some of them have foraging beaks. So again, very much like Darwin's finches, but again, a very well studied um, adaptive radiation. They're very cute too. If you've never seen a Hawaiian honeycreeper, they're very adorable. Oh, I'm like, have them on my list. I have a list of birds I'm planning to see in Hawaii. Amazing. There are lots. Um, and then of course, unique Hawaiian animals. I tried to look up um, a lot of endemic Hawaiian species. There are quite a few. I will tell you, a lot of them are birds and a lot of them are fish. Um, yeah. So we're going to focus on the ones that are, well, we're going to talk about a few birds, but we're mostly going to talk about a few other fun ones. What? Um, so the Hawaiian monk seal. If you've ever seen a Hawaiian uh, monk seal. Love them. Yes, screen, they have they them. At the adorable. They have Where them in the Minnesota Zoo. It's the only they place do. outside of Hawaii you can see them. That's I'm wearing true. one on my shirt right now. Oh, wow. They're amazing. Um, there are about a dozen of them in the wild right now. Uh, they are heavily protected um, whenever they haul out on beaches. The like monk seal um, monitoring people will come out and kind of blockade them from people. Uh, nice. There was a really was born um, in Waikiki last this past summer um, in on Oahu. And he was very cute. And he liked to hang out where all the people like to hang out. So they had basically a giant area of the beach blocked off just for him because he was very cute. But now he doesn't live there anymore because now he's a big boy. And they put snakes uh, up anyway, their the noses. Hawaiian monk seals. What? They put snakes up their noses. Eels. They put eels up their noses. They put eels up their noses. <laughs> don't do it on purpose. They're yeah, I was going to say. I don't things think... and then the eel bites them. I don't think they, they want can't the get eel it off. on their nose. <laughs> no, but it's kind of a weird phenomenon that. I haven't seen it in any other species, so I enjoy it's like talking that meme about where it. it's like, if I had a nickel every time this happened, I nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it happened twice. twice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Dr. Doofenshmirtz, a good time. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. So that's uh, the Hawaiian monk seal. Um, uh, when I volunteered at the Waikiki Aquarium, we used to have a very sweet Hawaiian monk seal. His name was Ma. 
Um, and he was the sweetest and he was the oldest Hawaiian monk seal um, known. He was in his 30s. It's pretty wow. crazy. Um, and he would just sit and spin and be perfect. So if you ever see that gif that floats around every once in a while of the seal, just like literally spinning in a circle, like bobbing up and down, that's Maka. That was his thing. Uh, he has since passed, but he was very sweet. Um, and then, yes, he was a good boy. Uh, there are also nene geese in Hawaii. Um, I think Emily might talk about this a little bit later. Um, but the nene geese are, again, an endemic Hawaiian bird. Um, they're actually in a lot of zoos and aquariums nowadays um, as part of a species survival plan. We love that. Uh, there are about a million different seabirds that use the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands as a refuge and nesting grounds. The Hawaiian hoary bat is endemic to Hawaii, so they have their a own bat. bat. Put that in there for you, Kenzie. You're welcome. I've been summoned. Uh, is that the only <laughs> non-marine mammal that's like endemic to Hawaii? Uh, there are. I want to say yes, but I don't want to say yes. hundred percent. I just have I... to um, mention a cool bat since we got on the topic of bats. There's a bat that lives in Fiji um, that is called the monkey face bat. They literally look like they have a lemur face, um, but they're like a super rare bat that's like barely even studied. So. Just got to add on to the bats and the islands. <laughs> Again, these animals that can fly, they make it to these islands. They're able to capitalize. Ah, oh, I don't like that. <laughs> the monkey face bat? I don't like him. I'm sorry. Do you <laughs> not like bats? You don't like that? I like bats, but he's really scary. Well, you know what? Maybe he, he says scared. you're scary. Maybe he, he, he has hurt feelings now. He did it that's, to look like that's something he's sensitive about. He's staring into my soul, and I feel small. And you it's have a bad. You judged unworthy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, kids. All right. Google, Google it, okay? They're they're kind of scary looking. All right. Um, I mentioned, like I said, seabirds. Um, Abby mentioned albatross. Um, if you've ever heard of Wisdom, the Laysan albatross, who's like seventy years old, um, she comes to Oahu to lay her baby, which is very She's exciting. my hero. She's amazing. Um, also, I just thought I'd mention this. Um, if you've never seen, I think it's Blue Planet. They do a great episode about the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands um, because of all the seabirds that nest there. Uh, but you know what also likes to live there? Tiger sharks. Because you know what's up? Baby birds that haven't quite figured out how to swim yet. Oh, um, come on. Okay, but the footage <laughs> is incredible. These tiger sharks literally are like, I don't know how to explain it. Like, you know, when a dog thinks they're doing something sneaky, but they're not being sneaky. That's yeah, what yes. they look like. They're like, I'm sneaking up on this bird. Do, 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 do. But it's very clear what's happening. Um, <laughs> the footage is incredible. Just check it out if you haven't seen it already. Um, and then some other things, Hawaiian tree snails. Uh, the Hawaiian tree snail lab is at the University of Hawaii. And I got a chance to tour it. Um, they have so many different tree snails that have been um, collected for research. So there used to be over 300 to 400 different described unique species of Hawaiian tree snails. They live very high up in the mountains. They live on like one specific tree that's endemic and they eat one specific fungus that grows on this specific tree. Um, well, when the humans got to, wow, you know what's cool? Tree snails. You know what I want as a pet? Tree snails. You know what I could do? Collect them all like Pokemon. Well, obviously oh. <laughs> that did not go well. Um, and they killed a whole bunch of them off. Um, and then they oh, no. introduced, unfortunately, carnivorous snails. And the carnivorous snails ate a whole bunch of these cute little tree snails. So there are not very many left. Truly, they think that there are maybe like 50 to 100 individuals of some um, Literally, like, they live on one tree now. It's very sad. Um, they are protected in a few areas, both on Oahu, um, Maui, and Big Island. Um, but there truly just aren't that many left. Um, so good job, humans. You did it. Uh, and then lastly, all of the fish. So if y'all ever get the chance to go out, please go visit the Waikiki Aquarium. They have some of the coolest and most unique fish I have ever seen, ever worked with. Um, they actually have a whole exhibit that's just Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And it's mostly just fish that you can only find in the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. Um, I have been lucky enough to see some of these fish, um, snorkeling both on Maui and Oahu. Um, so I listed a few of them here and I only listed ones that I have personally seen. Um, so the masked angelfish, millet seed, butterfly fish, Hawaiian trigger, Hawaiian sergeants, pearl wrasse, Hawaiian cleaner wrasse. I could keep going. 
there's a whole lot of them. Um, a lot of wrasse, a lot of chorus, and a lot of stonefish. So very exciting. If you're a marine biologist, those words do mean something to you. Hey, they're fish. They're pretty. That's all you need to know. Um, yeah. And with that, that's all I've got about Hawaii. Um, and so I think it is Kenzie's turn. Hi there, everyone. It's me, your girl, Kenzie. And we're <laughs> heading on over to our really programmed um, do doom and gloom section. So buckle up and here we go. So as always, we're going to talk about some of the issues that islands in general are facing. Uh, we've already touched on quite a few of them, so I'm just going to kind of summarize it up. So first and foremost is the deforestation and depletion of natural resources. So essentially, as human population and overall visitation to islands increase, of course, you're going to have greater pressure there on the available resources of the island. Now, because of their limited space and materials, sustaining large populations is incredibly difficult. Uh, for example, in the Galapagos, there's been really big issues uh, with disposal of waste and garbage. So there will be open air dumping and burning of the materials because there's just not enough space or availability of proper facilities. Mm -hmm. um, to kind of put some more in perspective, especially on the deforestation side, uh, the Easter Islands can be seen as a big warning narrative for this. It's actually theorized that the overuse and deforestation of the islands actually led to the extinction of human cultures that once populated there. So um, we don't like that. Yeah, no, no, no. Think, think twice before you cut down all the trees so you can roll your big stone heads uh, across an island. Um, I, I, do, I, I don't know if they thought that all the way through, but here we are. <laughs> I got to make a new plan for my big stone heads now. <laughs> <laughs> here's, here's a plan. Um, don't do it. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll break them. Don't worry. Yeah, um, it's, it's okay. Sculpture is good. We can, we can dig sculpture. Let's be real. Um, invasive species. That's probably one of the biggest, biggest issues with islands, as we've yep. talked about previously, because they just have no natural and built defense to these guys. And they're so specifically adapted to those ecological niches that losing them is, uh, is pretty devastating. Um, so there is an incredible photo from Fish and Wildlife that shows the impact of what's called an exclusion fence in Haleakala National Park. I'm uh, all right. So exclusion fences, what are they? So essentially exclusion fences are there to keep out uh, deer and feral livestock from parts of a park. Uh, one side is completely stripped of vegetation if you look at the photo available. Um, and this includes the sil silver swords mentioned earlier, while the other side is noticeably much more dense in vegetation and very, very lush. Um, I've actually seen exclusion fences too in the Great Smokies Mountain National Park because there was certain sections of the park where you have these really weird kind of wetland areas that just pop up out of nowhere, these little swamps. Mm -hmm. And we have feral hogs there. So of course they've mm -hmm. been there, they root around, they tear up all of the plants and such. So they actually put fences up around them to exclude the wild hogs from coming in. Um, oh. I do not like feral wild hogs. I burn with a passion against them. I actually tried to wrestle one once in Texas. Oh my goodness. Terrible. I think you've told that story before I, on this podcast. I think I did, but you know what? I'm just going to mention it out there again. Uh, anyways, moving on. Aside from invasive species, who is this? It's a regular guest. It's climate change. <laughs> so with climate change, of course, we have a host of different issues. Uh, one big no-no for islands is that with climate change and the melting of the sea ice, you get what? Rising sea levels. Uh, <gasps> that's not something you want when you're on a low-line island. As yeah, there's you need to tell me. You mean to tell me I have waterfront property this century? That's right. Just wait 20 or 40 more years and you'll have waterfront property. Location, location, location. Oh my gosh. My house price is going to like, the value is going to skyrocket. We don't want that though. We can't <laughs> we don't afford a house now. <laughs> well, oh, also yeah. to environmental damage. Um, but <laughs> what? <laughs> So uh, low-lying islands, rising sea levels, very little to protect them against storm surges, especially as we've already seen this storm season, um, storms are getting stronger, lasting longer, and we're having more of them. 
Um, coral reefs as well, especially ones that surround tropical islands, are bleaching at an alarming rate. This impacts local fisheries and also revenue uh, that's generated from ecotourism and just basic day-to-day -day living for the locals there on those islands. Yeah. Can also, we... um, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I just uh, write uh, wildfires too. Yes. Bad, bad. Yeah. Um, the island that I did a lot of research on uh, is called Hingaroo Island in Australia. It's actually an island, though. It's off the coast of Australia. <laughs> um, but I studied uh, glossy black cockatoos that were initially um, – there were populations of them on mainland Australia. They were basically eradicated from the mainland, and the only place you can find uh, the certain species of them is now on Kangaroo Island. Um, it's really valued for its biodiversity. Uh, and unfortunately, um, since the wildfires started in late 2019 into 2020 in Australia, um, much of that island uh, experience some really severe bushfires, uh, and they actually don't really know how that population is doing now. Um, but like it goes to show you when the last population or the only population of a species is on a small little island, if anything happens to that island, we are in we are in big trouble, boys. <laughs> um, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier too, but I had a statistic. Oh no, I put it at the end about the rate of extinction on islands is much higher than uh, anywhere else. So We'll get to it. We'll get there, but go ahead. Continue <laughs> with some solutions. Help. So what can we do? <laughs> well, that is a great question, everyone. Uh, so the one of the biggest things that we can do um, or is being done right now is really the removal of invasive species is one of the best possible solutions for conserving island habitats. Uh, because although islands only cover about 5% of the Earth's surface, they're actually home to roughly 40% of all endangered species, most of which are threatened by invasives. Shocker. Um, and of course, for things concerning climate change, remember, vote with your dollar and at the ballot because as much as we can do as individuals, most of the blame lies on big corporations who are not following proper protocol or disregarding it, um, as well as politicians who need to implement better policies on environmental protection. Because I don't want society to collapse in 20 years. I would like to live. I want to live in a livable climate. I don't Hashtag know why that's move to that date. And let's not have our overshoot day happen on July 29th. Yes, let's, let's um, push it back, please. Going back really quick to removing invasive species. Um, this is actually something that people can get really involved with, um, yeah. especially here in Florida. I know a lot of the state park system, um, they will host invasive plant removal days. Mm -hmm. Ooh. And help remove them yourself. I did a oyster plant removal in um, South Florida once. It was I don't want to say it was a lot of fun because it was a lot of work, um, but we did a lot of good that day. So, good I, say, I did one at a state park that's near my house, and it was it was really fun because I got to meet some crazy people. There you so, go, crazy yeah. people, well, like crazy. So cool, you can get not involved. Like insane. Yeah, not like like Florida crazy. <laughs> so check well, out your local, state, or national parks and see if there's a invasive species cleanup near you, and you can help contribute. If you are visiting islands, make sure that you are doing so responsibly. Make sure that you are respecting the local flora and fauna. Uh, follow appropriate guidelines and try and do some research on some really cool responsible ecotourism opportunities. Tyler and I, uh, my husband and I, when we're on our honeymoon, are going to volunteer with a sea turtle facility to do nest checks. Stop. I'm very excited. I'm <laughs> so gonna, romantic. I'm going to cry the whole time. It's going to be amazing. I love that. All right. Well, before we go, Emily A., I think you have a couple things that you would like to share. Yeah. Before we get into our conclusion here, um, I mean, number one, I just have to give a huge shout out to Tahiti um, because my family lives there. And y'all, that place is a real life paradise. It's it's beautiful. Um, one Can of I go the visit your family. Field <laughs> trip. Okay. <laughs> Um, one of the things that um, was pretty cool for me as a kid was growing up with my grandfather you because he was a shark biologist there. Why what? are you just telling us this now? <laughs> that he was a shark biologist? Yes. I don't oh. know this. He is I didn't know this. Now... 
He's also now a botanist studying hibiscus flowers, and apparently oh he's, the, he's the real deal in the hibiscus community. What? Um, but he studied um, tropical shark communication, um, and he did his research there in Tahiti, and he fell in love with it, so he just never left. That's <laughs> fair. That's so cool. Yeah, he was um, one of the first people to record communication in tropical sharks by identifying their body language. Um, so, for example, one of the things that he studied was how they use pectoral fins to communicate. Many scientists have since studied um, this for years now, but they've concluded that some sharks actually do warn before they attack, which is really interesting, um, or display what humans determine as aggressive behavior. Um, so, pretty cool stuff. Um but, you know, I'm not just going to sit here and brag about my family members. I'm going to talk oh, about you can. Cool research. <laughs> I think this is okay to, to brag about. That's so cool. Um, so what's some other cool research that has been done on islands? Um, I mean, Daddy Darwin, duh. <laughs> duh. That's Basically. the shirt. Daddy Darwin, duh. Duh. <laughs> and then all the finches. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Emily mentioned, am I going to say it right? Is it Nene geese? I love yes, that. Yes, that's right. Okay. The Nene geese um, found in Hawaii are one of the most rare birds in the world. Uh, most rare, like waterfowl specifically. Um, their population dropped to 30 in the 1950s. But thanks to research and conservation efforts, their populations are now at 2,500 individuals. So, yay. We love that. are very cute. <laughs> um, moving towards um, corals, um, the NOAA recently saw um, some recoupment of different types of corals coming in, as well as the return of fish, something that they haven't seen on their original surveys after one of the major hurricanes that affected, um, if I'm going to say this right, uh, Lalo, Lalo, Lalo. Good uh, enough for me. Okay. Um, it was Hurricane Wallaca. Um, that affected it. I know. I'm I'm really butchering it, y'all, but I'm trying. Um, but during their expedition, researchers found coral reefs from um the French frigate shells. Again, more words. French frigate shells. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, and they're recovering from storm damage. Um, so that's something that's really great that's happening over there. Um, Partula snails found again in Tahiti. I have to mention it. I'm so sorry. Uh, but <laughs> they were classified as extinct. Um, and they're now on the comeback. They actually found, um, they've been found back in their homeland for the first time in 25 years. Woo! A long time that's, y'all. that's pretty great yes um and that's all thanks to more research that has been done um and conservation efforts that's actually something that um aza organizations are heavily involved in which is super cool mm-hmm. um a really awesome study um i found from fiji uh studied conservation in, in relation to indigenous communities um, they studied how Fijian culture um, conservation does not mean locking things away. Conservation refers to managing the environment sustainably so that resources will be available for the future to provide food, water, health, and importantly, the ability to undertake cultural practices. Um, what they were comparing this to was that it goes completely against uh, current practices in Western wealthy countries. <laughs> cough cough like the united states (laughs) um who often favor the equality approach where everyone in the region gets equal benefits and people get up their historical give up their historical researches resources jesus such as um fishers to receive more funds now when i say equal benefits i'm talking about in conservation meaning like everyone gets the equal benefit to hunt um, whereas in these more indigenous communities, they're describing it as um, they are more specific about how they hunt so that there are resources in the future. Um, so this is something that I think all of us have known as conservation queens. 
Um, but it's something that I thought was really nice seeing research like this become uh, not just more prevalent, but also really popular in conservation. Like it was one of the first things that came up for Fijian research. So loved seeing that. Um, and then my last cool research study I found was one where they actually categorized eight islands that need more conservation and research efforts directed towards and by um, protecting those islands. It can save 9.4% of the entire Earth's population of threatened wildlife. Whoa. So I know 9.4 doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think about it in retrospect, that's a lot. <laughs> um, so islands are pretty great. I obviously fell in love with Tahiti and the islands ecosystems are just truly beautiful. Um, but the ecosystems, the culture, and indigenous communities in these places need to be protected. Islands are delicate, and they need all the help that they can get. They have the highest proportion of recorded species extinctions. So I did mention a lot of cool research, and research is always important for directly saving wildlife. But my personal favorite way to be involved in making a bigger impact is educating myself and supporting local communities. So locals need your support to protect and save their own land and wildlife. So um, Kenzie, what do you think that means our listeners should do? <laughs> I totally <laughs> I'm coming to you because uh, you always tell everyone to go vote. <laughs> oh, yes, go vote, go vote. Uh, for our United States friends, midterms are coming up this fall. Uh, make sure that you are registered to vote and make sure to send in those ballots to the mail, baby. <laughs> Good Absolutely. deal. All right. Nice. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Um, no big announcements this week. If you are not a patron yet, um, please go. Be a beluga and you can babe. have a sticker. And you can be a beluga bait and you could join an elite circle of my friends. That are <laughs> elite circle of my friends and my friends' parents who are beluga bait. Uh, <laughs> uh, but with that, if you aren't already following us on social media, please do so. You can find us at Conservation Queens Podcast everywhere. Thank you so much for joining us out there and stay sustainable. Bye. 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 Oh, 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 oh,